Hey podcast listeners, welcome to this episode of the Sustainable Jungle podcast, where we're learning from incredible people working on the world's toughest sustainability and conservation problems. This week we speak to Todd Lemons, an economist, engineer, and ultimately an environmentalist. Not exactly your run-of-the-mill combination. Over the last 25 years, Todd has lived and worked in South and Central America, mainland China, and Southeast Asia. He has served as CEO of Envision Corp, an incubator for sustainability technologies and a leader in the development of market-based environmental finance solutions. He also founded Infinite Earth, an organization which develops and manages tropical conservation land banks and provides environmental offsets to companies across the globe. Most recently, Todd has founded Viridium Labs, an environmental fintech company offering real-world application of blockchain technology that uses cryptographic environmental mitigation offsets. Phew, recognize that there are a ton of buzzwords in that intro, which we aim to explain further in this episode. We cover Todd's background, how he went from chopping down trees to saving them, the mechanisms being used to do this, and how blockchain will be used to dramatically improve how carbon offsets are traded for companies and consumers. That is a whole lot of intro, so let's get stuck into this episode with Todd Lemons. Todd, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. You are the CEO of Envision Corp and the co-founder of both Infinite Earth and Viridium Labs, both of which were set up with the underlying objective of protecting natural capital. Let's start with your journey. Where were you born and where did you grow up? Uh, I was born in the U.S. in California, um, grew up uh, largely in, in California and Florida. And so I always was connected to nature and, lived, you know, had a very active uh, outdoor life. That's awesome. And did you stay in California for your studies? Um, actually, no. So uh, I, I attended the University of the South in the mountains of Tennessee. Um, and then, uh, and then uh, also uh, did uh, a year abroad at the University of the Andes in Colombia and then a master's at the uh, Universidad Católica in, um, in Santiago, Chile. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's, that obviously gives us some clues as to your direction thereafter. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, uh, so, you know, as an undergraduate, to be honest with you, uh, I didn't, uh, you know, all I really knew was I wanted to do something internationally, and I wanted to do something outdoors. Yes. <laughs> so white collar, you know, some sort of white collar job outdoors. And so uh, I ended up working um, almost immediately for natural resource companies uh, abroad um, in South America. And um, that, you know, sort of was the beginning of the journey. And what sort of what was the initial sort of light bulb moment where you realized you were interested in deforestation? Wow, when I was working for uh, timber companies, of course. Of course. <laughs> so, yes. so uh, you know, as an employee of uh, in the mining and forestry business, uh, clearly um, I was confronted uh, and felt a little bit schizophrenic, right? Uh, so you know, I was in the business because I had a love of nature and and natural resources uh, and natural resource management seemed to be the way to go. But the big employers are, of course, extractive companies more than conservation. And um, so, you know, in the process of working for those companies, I uh, was confronted with a number of environmental challenges. And, 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 uh, but as an engineer, I saw them differently than, um, than environmentalists were seeing them. And, and I really, you know, was interested in identifying what the uh, economic drivers of those um, impacts were. And the, the conclusion I came to was really that these were uh, gross misallocations of, you know, vital and valuable natural resources. 
Right. And so that took you into to managing forests somehow. I, I read in your profile that you ended up managing forests in China. Is that right? Well, yeah. So originally, originally in uh, it started off in in South America, um, where we began to uh, look for market mechanisms to correct, um, you know, or uh, address these environmental impacts and to change corporate behavior through environment uh, through economic incentives. And so um, we we engaged in a number of projects. Uh, where, uh, for example, a, a forestry company in Chile was clear-cutting a beautiful Chilean cherry temperate forest for pulpwood, right. <laughs> so essentially firewood, mm. and oh, uh, clearly a tragic use of, of a beautiful, you know, uh, diminishing resource. And Greenpeace and other NGOs had been protesting the project for many years. Um, but uh, again, we sat down and, and tried to understand what was driving that. And essentially, the uh, there was no market in the U.S. for Chilean cherry. It had to be U.S. cherry or the furniture companies couldn't use it. So we ended up finding markets in Asia that would take Chilean cherry and converted that. We created a joint venture between the, uh, prop, the forest owner and a Taiwanese um, flooring manufacturer. And over the course of two or three years, built a uh, multi-million dollar flooring facility that, uh, you know, changed everything. It was, a, you know, very much a triple bottom line win where the, uh, uh, the forestry owners stopped clear cutting, started select cutting, you know, significantly less impact on the environment, um, creating, you know, downstream products, which of course were, you know, more beneficial for the forestry owner, for the Chilean economy and for, you know, Chilean employees. And uh, eventually Greenpeace and the others went away and, you know, problem was essentially solved. Right. So that was the sort of the beginning. And, you know, we sort of just springboarded from one of these opportunities uh, um, to another and, and um, you know, ended up uh, creating a company uh, around, around, you know, developing environmentally or economically sound environmental solutions. And then about, uh, so that eventually led us to Asia. And uh, we, um, that is when the Kyoto Protocols were signed in 2005 and sadly really omitted deforestation, which is actually the single largest source of emissions. Mm. And the deforestation was not addressed in the Kyoto Protocols um, for a variety of reasons, but uh, uh, one of which was that the accounting methodology had not been uh, developed. So it was, it's, you know, it's quite easy to measure emissions from a smokestack and and then, you know, uh, come up with mechanisms to mitigate that. It's fairly complex, uh, relatively speaking, to you know, uh, measure the would-be emissions in a deforestation scenario from a complex tropical forest. So we decided that that was still, not, you know, however challenging, it was still too important to ignore. And um, so we funded the development of the first uh, account forest carbon accounting protocol, which is, you know, now called uh, REDD and is embodied in the Paris Agreement. Right. We're going to chat about REDD in a, in a little while. The only other question I had on your background was you ended up in Asia, you founded Infinite Earth, and somehow along the way you ended up in Borneo 
and started looking at the feasibility of saving the forests. How did that come about? Well, in, 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 in the process of understanding uh, or, or in the process of addressing the issue that, you know, the um, industrial agricultural conversion of forests uh, uh, being the single largest source of emissions had not been addressed in the, in the Kyoto Protocols, we looked around the world and essentially uh, asked, you know, tried to investigate where the, you know, the greatest need or transgression was occurring. And that was clearly in Indonesia. Indonesia at the time in 2007 was uh, the third largest emitter in the world or estimated to be the third largest emitter in the world. And, you know, and it's relatively an unindustrialized country. And so most of those emissions are virtually all really were coming from uh, the conversion of biodiverse forests into palm oil. Right. And so we specifically wrote the methodology to account for the most uh, drastic impact uh, in the most complex type of forest in the world, which were these peat swamp forests uh, in, in Indonesia that are still today being converted at a staggering rate uh, to palm oil with plantations. You've already alluded to many of the deforestation, why it's so devastating, but Lal wants to d- dig into that in a little bit in a sec. But before we do that, I just wanted to ask you, you're obviously mission-driven in what you do, and I want to understand a little bit more. You, you mentioned that you grew up in California in nature and you had those experiences and we're fortunate enough to have those uh, those encounters. Do you have any moments where you felt were really life influencing in a way I mean Lal and I obviously grew up in Africa and so we often share stories of ourselves having these sort of life-changing moments in nature but is there anything that stands out for you I mean I read one of the articles about your uh, interactions with the orangutans so I wondered if there was something that stands out to you that sort of helps keep you mission driven if that makes sense yeah, I mean, several probably, but uh, definitely uh, one of the first, uh, interestingly enough, was in Malaysian Borneo, and I was working for a huge, uh, rather rapacious uh, timber company at the time <laughs> as a consultant, and uh, I had an encounter with a juvenile wild orangutan up close who, you know, I spotted him in, you know, in a nearby uh, tree and I just sat down and eventually over the period, uh, a course of an hour, he came closer and closer and he was fascinated by a red backpack that I was wearing. <laughs> and so I had this amazing Sweet. moment, uh, you know, with, with this, uh, this gentle, you know, intuitive, uh, sentient creature. And it was just, uh, you know, I, I think, that from that moment on, it was destined that some 20 years later, I would be working with orangutans in in, uh, in Borneo. And, uh, you know, other, other moments, both bitter and sweet, I suppose, uh, you know, uh, I, one, one moment of, of uh, swimming with a, a massive pod of 200 uh, whale sharks uh, off the coast of, of Mexico was just wow. un, you know, incredible. That's amazing. And uh, I grew up a scuba diver and, uh, you know, was certified at 15 and and uh, uh, I'm you know the the bitter part of I suppose of, of the experience is that as I go back and visit you know places that I dove uh, you know 20 years ago they're completely unrecognizable you know I mean our the the, the sea is full of plastic uh, you know uh, massive elkhorn coral reefs have completely disappeared due to acidification so, you know, these are the kinds of moments that uh, continue to 
both you know inspire and drive me i guess yeah, yeah absolutely yeah it's funny it's um it's not just the the special and precious moments that you recall with an orangutan but but also very much a driver of those hor- horrific scenes of of diving in, in plastic and i think a lot of people these days are, are much more aware of events that are occurring around the world so much more often todd i just want to as joy mentioned i'm going to get into a little bit more about deforestation and, and the climate problem in general. Now, you've obviously you've spent a significant amount of time, years, in fact, in South America and Southeast Asia. Now, everyone is, I think, and I hope, to some degree aware of deforestation and the negative impacts that's having on the planet. But I wonder if you could give us an idea of what, what is the current state of affairs at the moment and what level of concern should we have for deforestation now? It's uh, we should be very concerned. Um, I mean, you know, while while we have uh, embarked on or created a mechanism that that uh, depends largely on the climate change, uh, you know, uh, issue through carbon markets. Really, I think there are a couple of things that will get us before climate change. And one is this collapse of of uh, of biodiverse forests that uh, that we're experiencing across the globe. Um, and you know, hand in hand with that is the complete and utter uh, dis- uh, disappearance of of you know fresh water, essentially. So I think I think you know the climate change itself, or or ice, you know, as as just an you know carbon emissions issue, uh, gets a, a lot of attention, um, and most of that attention is often fo- focused on fossil fuel companies, but in fact, uh, inescapably, uh, the far bigger threat I think to the survival of the planet and to humans as a species. Um, is the is the impact that we that uh, that feeding ourselves is having? Uh, the food industry largely flies under the radar. We don't understand as consumers. We mostly don't understand our impact um, uh, that that our cons- you know food consumption has. We worry about turning off lights, changing to LED bulbs, driving you know more fuel efficient cars. But in fact, uh, the impact, which is far broader than, you know, driving our car, uh, the the broad environmental impacts that uh, our food production has is uh, out, out, you know, it's it's bigger than I I would say that uh, it's bigger than than, you know, the energy sector impacts by an order of magnitude. That's scary. Um, in in central Kalimantan in 2008, when we um, began to acquire the Rimbaraya Biodiversity Reserve, uh, the deforestation rate was five percent annually. Oh my goodness! Oh, wow. So you know, in That's 20 horrific. years, it, it would be gone. Um, it's yeah. I mean, it's slowed now because there's almost nothing left. Uh, Rimbaraya's one of maybe two significant forests left in in that uh, province. Uh, everything else has been converted basically to palm oil. And these, you know, and these are huge stores of biodiversity of of and huge stores of the world's fresh water supplies. And uh, you know, they're disappearing at an alarming rate. Uh, that is absolutely horrific. And and so I know that orangutans are a very endangered species. What other sorts of species are near the brink in those areas? 
Yes. So um, the Rimbaraya Biodiversity Reserve uh, forms a buffer zone between uh, palm oil and the uh, Tanjun Puting National Park. And Tanjun Puting is famous for um, housing Camp Leakey. This is where uh, Dr. Barute Galdikas was sent out by Dr. Louis Leakey to um, to study uh, orangutans along with her uh, her colleagues Diane Fossey to study gorillas in Africa and and uh, Jane Goodall to study chimpanzees. So uh, Tanjit Puting is is home to Camp Leakey, where Dr. Barute Galdikas has uh, centered her research for the last forty five years. And uh, uh, Rimbaraya actually provides a, a physical barrier from uh, palm oil. Palm oil has illegally deforested some 17,000 hectares or almost 50,000 acres of the national park um, before they could be stopped. And Rimbaraya creates a buffer along the entire eastern uh, border of the park. So Tanjun Puting is the, is the single largest uh, uh, high density population centers for wild orangutans left in the world. Um, and, you know, there's no border between Rimbarai and Tanjun Puting. It's, it's virtual. And so orangutans are definitely the flagship endangered species there. But it also includes uh, gibbons um, and also proboscis monkey and clouded snow leopard and Asian sun bears and and uh, pangolins, and we have about 106, I think it's 106 uh, threatened and endangered species that are on the red CITES list um, that uh, have been identified in, in Rimbaraya. That is terrifying to, to think that those species one day and sooner than later possibly be removed from this earth altogether. Yeah, so that we can have cookies and candy. And that's actually a point, what Joy mentioned, Todd. So Palm oil is basically found in everything from toothpaste to ice cream to biofuel. And the list goes on. It is, uh, it, it is ubiquitous. It is uh, an incredibly, it, it has very interesting properties. It's odorless, colorless, tasteless, and incredibly prolific. So, um, so there are good reasons why palm oil um, has spread um, as quickly as it has and as, and as extensively as it has. And yeah, it's it's uh, no, regardless of how you know conscious you are of it, it is virtually impossible for any of us to escape the use of palm oil throughout the day. Whether whether it's in our soap or shampoo or breakfast bars, or you know even if you aren't eat, you think you're eating healthily and 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 not eating you know candy cookies cakes and crackers, um, you're most likely to have used it at some point during the day. It's just prevalent in absolutely everything we consume. And from what I understand, so we have this, these palm oil plantations, and, and that seems to be one of the major drivers for deforestation. What sort of amount of carbon are we talking about that's being emitted from such deforestation? I know that peatlands have enormous stores of carbon, but what exactly, how much carbon are we talking about? Well, so, yeah, the, uh, most or, or a significant portion of these uh, of palm oil is planted on peatlands. It's one of the few agricultural co crops that will do well. Uh, peatlands are um, often, you know, uh, uh, inaccessible and so on, and so they they are sold off at cheaper prices. 
Um, so really, you know, by default, uh, uh, the palm oil industry um, has, you know, the vast majority of responsibility for the depletion of, of peatlands in Southeast Asia. Those peatlands ho um, hold or store 10 times the global average per hectare of, of carbon. So you're talking about 2,500 tons per hectare versus maybe 200, 250 in Gee. a forest in, in the Amazon, for example. Wow. That is... So it really is unbelievably destructive to be taking these mm. forests down beyond just the loss of habitats. It be, yeah, so beyond the loss, of, so these are also transitional forests, uh, and, and so they're extremely high in biodiversity. The, the Rimbaraya Biodiversity Reserve is a, a classified as a um, high-value conservation forest, um, so meeting, you know, uh, far above the global average in biodiversity stocks per, per hectare. Uh, it's also a high-carbon st uh, stock forest. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, again, so from an emissions point of view, it's literally 10 times what, uh, the same, you know, the same, uh, footprint that, uh, any other forest would have in, uh, if you were, you know, to, to clear it. What sort of historical mechanisms have been used to address or curb these problems and what, to what degree, Todd, have they been successful? Well, I mean, the only, the only tool we've had in our toolbox is, 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 is conventional conservation for the last, you know, 50 or 100 years, right? I mean, yeah. it hasn't changed much. Um, you know, Dr. I, I, we work very closely with Dr. Galdikas and the Orangutan Foundation International. Um, I think we're her largest single donor at this point. And, uh, you know, th here's, here's a woman who's dedicated her entire life to studying orangutans and orangutan conservation. Um, but, you know, as an NGO, she now spends most of her time um, on the trail, <laughs> you know, seeking donations, right? That, and so she, she's fundraising almost as a full-time job yeah. um, in, in, you know, instead of doing the incredibly important work of, of, uh, of research and conservation that she did, um, you know, for, for most of her career. So, so that's a very limited tool and it's had, frankly, you know, uh, uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. Obviously, WWF and and Greenpeace and and you know Rainforest Alliance and all these uh, environmental groups uh, you know, do fantastic work. Um, probably first and foremost in in raising awareness politically and and socially. That's that's extremely important. But at the end of the day. Um, you, you know, has has the deforestation rate been, uh, you know, mitigated at all? No, not at all. It's only increasing. Um, so we don't even see, a, you know, a falling rate of deforestation. We see an accelerating rate of deforestation. And so that clearly is a tool that, that um, while we need to keep it in the toolbox and we need to use it, <laughs> you know, it's time to come up with some new tools. And that's that's really... That's really, you know, what we have tried to do as a company for nearly 30 years is to just create, you know, newer and better and uh, uh, variety of tools that we can use to address the problem. Because clearly no one single, you know, solution is 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 uh, is going to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And especially with um, 
the ever-increasing population and demand for resources and food, and obviously, as you mentioned, food being a major driver. And Joy will get into Red Plus in just a bit. And I think you've already answered this question. How serious do you think you know South America and Indonesia are taking this problem? I suppose money speaks, doesn't it? Um, it's the only thing that speaks. You know, it, it, it's it's uh, the world is it, we like to draw the world black and white. But in fact, uh, there's so many unintended consequences and and things that we don't consider, um, you know, as, as a consumer in particular. Uh you know, it's uh, how do you go to Indonesia and say, set aside, uh, you know, this vast area for conservation for free um, and uh, for the benefit of, of the, you know, the, the broader global community and forego your right to, um, you know, monetize those natural assets, uh, you know, those those national nas- natural assets. I mean, it's uh, yeah. It's it's a it's a complex question. Um, And at the end of the day, uh, regardless of, you know, uh, whether you're, you know, communist China or or capitalist United States, um, you know, economies run on value assessments, basically. And and that's really the issue. If we want to save, you know, if, if we all agree on this call that these biodiverse forests in Southeast Asia and in the Amazon and in the Congo, if all of those, you know, we we can all easily agree that they are essentially priceless. They're invaluable. We, we hear ourselves say that over and over again. But then you have to say, well, what is the real, you know, what is the, 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 the value? And then what is the price? Because those are two totally different things. We say it's invaluable. But, um, you know, the price of a hectare of biodiverse forest in, in Indonesia is $17. That's, that's what it costs uh, a mining company, a timber company, or a palm oil company to uh, acquire a concession, uh, $17 per hectare. And in the case of palm oil in particular, to completely devastate that, level it to the ground, raise it, you know, slash and burn, and convert to palm oil. Um, so, you know, mining and timber get most of the bad rap. Uh, but in fact, you know, if they acquire a thousand hectares, they don't deforest a thousand hectares. They may have a significant impact, uh, but, but, they, but it doesn't disappear completely. Yeah. And, um, but, you know, in the case of industrial agricultural conversion, it does. And, and the price of that is $17. That's what we say That's that uh, those biodiverse forests are worth. As a society, you know, we can blame that on Indonesia, but, but, you know, we as a society, we as consumers have to take responsibility that that is, you know, indirectly, that's what we are saying that it's worth because we don't want to pay you know, five cents more for a candy bar. And I, I mean, I can really, in many ways, I can understand it from, say, Indonesia's perspective. It's the classic problem that we're seeing at the moment in all of these arguments where developing countries are saying, well, you've benefited from industrialization for how many years? And that's why you are, you know, a fully developed country and your people have really high standards of living. And now we want to do the same and you're stopping us because you've already destroyed the planet. So I can understand from their perspective, unless we can find a way to attribute 
economic value, it's going to be really, really tricky to convince them that it's a good idea to save the forest. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly, exactly. If we can't put a price tag on it, uh, then um, it's uh, irresponsible of us to, you know, we have no moral uh, ground to ask them to, um, you know, to do differently than we did. And so if we're, you know, we have to come up with uh, economically viable alternatives. And that's what we're trying to do with, you know, uh, Red Plus and, and the Rimbaraya Biodiversity Reserve. Right. So as far as I understand it, the objective of Red Plus is to attribute value to nature so as to compete with these alternative economic applications of the land. So, for example, palm oil. So uh, idealistically, as humans, we should not have to attribute value to land in order to save it because we should all understand that it's inherently valuable and important to our very really important to our very existence but of course that's not the world that we live in and humans don't think of things like that humans only really understand progress and profits and that far outweighs that idealist notion so am i understanding correctly that red the, the, the structure and the mechanism of red serves to bridge that divide between the economically driven and the idealist view by saving the forest, but also attributing value to the to the land. You, you are, and the problem with the idealist view is it disconnects um, everything, right? It disconnects you know, the consumption from the impact and uh, the alternative, com- you know, or competitive uh, forces uh, um, that that uh, that are vying for those resources, etc. Um, so. You know, the, the red mechanism, it, it was born out of uh, an understanding that in everything we consume, there are these hidden impacts and or unintended consequences. And, and those are called externalities. So, you know, um, and, and when, whenever we consume a, a you know, cappuccino, um, there are lots of things, you know, there are a lot of ingredients in there and, and, and we pay for we pay for the coffee, we pay for the milk. Uh, we pay for the electricity and the labor and, and so on that goes into that and, and, and the paper cup. But what we don't pay for is the impact that uh, these ever, you know, expanding uh, coffee plantations in tropical, you know, forest areas of the world is having. We don't pay for, you know, the milk was probably, uh, the dairy cows were probably fed by soybeans, which came from plantations in the Amazon. Um, and, uh, and the paper may have come from, you know, companies, uh, and particularly in Southeast Asia that are clearing, you know, tropical forests to plant hybrid forests to create it for the pulp and paper, um, industry. So, you know, all, all, everything we do has these impacts, but they are, they're not costed in, or they're not priced into the goods that we consume. And so, um, the, the, the UN, you know, uh, uh, Kyoto protocols uh, and 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 the idea of red is really meant to address those. It's meant to to be able to give a price to those uh, impacts to the you know to the to the natural capital assets that are being affected, and to try and create mechanisms so that they can be uh, you know so that their conservation or replacement can be priced into the goods that we consume. And the closer that we can connect consumption to the impact, the more real, the more quantifiable, the more immediate um, and, and, and more efficient the solution will be. Mm-hmm. So we probably should explain to listeners that Red Plus is a voluntary approach that's defined by Wikipedia as reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation 
and the role of conservation, sustainable management of forests and enhancement of forest carbon stocks in developing countries, which is a huge mouthful. <laughs> um, <laughs> in practice, my understanding is that it in so for using Rimbaraya as an example, uh, because Rimbaraya is a virgin forest, a natural forest, it will be devastated if it's not protected. The idea is that under the concept of afforestation, if you can protect that and sell carbon credits to big corporates under that program to protect that land and in turn pass some of those funds onto local communities as well as to the Indonesian government as well as to the, the reserve protecting the orangutans. Is that really at a practical level how it works? It is. And, and you know, there are more familiar examples. This is actually not a new concept. Uh, the idea of conservation land banking um, and environmental mitigation credits have been around for at least 40 or 50 years um, in the U.S. and in Australia as well. Um, and some in your and as well as in Europe. Um, so, to, to, for example, if uh, and, and and those have led to incredibly, you know, uh, well managed uh, and high quality conservation areas in in those parts of the world. Um, you know, a very familiar example in the United States is that if you are uh, a land developer in Florida and want to develop a, you know, 300 acre resort uh, in, you know, on the coast, um, most likely you're going to have a, you know, you're going to impact coastal wetlands. And, and so in order to be approved for that, um, then you have to offset an area of equal size and or biodiversity value elsewhere. And so this is, you know, Clearly, we would like to just say we sh we don't want to develop anymore, <laughs> and we are never going to eat candy bars and and or consume palm oil anymore. Uh, um, but you know, realistically, uh, our population and consumption rates continues to grow, and so these are mechanisms that are rooted in um, realistic expectations and and efforts to to uh, to you know to uh, mitigate the impacts that this you know, never-ending march of, of, uh, of development has, right? So, so um, you know, a, a, a hotel developer in Florida is not in the business of conservation. So what he would do, or here, you know, what they would do is to go to a, a, um, a, uh, a biodiversity land bank or conservation land bank. And this is a group um, or individual who owns conservation reserve. And it's been independently audited uh, annually for its, you know, for its biodiversity value. And uh, they would then pay uh, that owner of that land to to you know to conserve that. Yeah. And so a, a lot of a lot of uh, people misunderstand this as a syntax or you know call it a syntax. You're just letting you know the polluters pollute and and so on. Um, but in fact, uh, it's it's very different than a tax. You know, it is essentially saying. Uh, you have to mitigate your footprint to zero. And if you, you know, if you have, uh, you know, a, a value of X on one side of the balance sheet, then you have to have an equal value of X on the other side of the balance sheet. And whether they outsource that conservation work or not is really um, pretty irrelevant. Um, the, the point is, is that they have to have a balanced balance sheet. I can understand the, the idealistic view of, you know, you, you really 
wouldn't want to develop in the first place or you wouldn't want to deforest in the first place and under the perfect in the perfect world we wouldn't have those problems but we do and we do have to find reasonable ways to to solve those problems and at the end of the day red plus even though it may not be perfect or solve the source of the problem and it's addressing really meaningful issue and it's saving natural habitats and forests like Rimbaraya. So to me, that does feel like it's impactful and, and purposeful. The, the thing to keep in mind is that um, while the end goal is always a, a, a fossil-free future or, you know, renewable energy or uh, zero development or what have you, um, you know, two facts are, are immutable. One um, is that uh, no, we will never reduce our footprint to zero. We could possibly stop the the uh, the rate of increase, um, but uh, no matter you know no matter how conscientious we are, um, you know none of us can actually reduce our footprint to zero. And so we have to do everything we can to reduce and recycle and reuse. But what happens after that? If you reduce from a hundred, you know, a unit of a hundred to uh, all the way down to twenty five, it's still twenty five. And so then what do we do with that balance and, and um, you know, Red Plus and everything that we, uh, are, we are trying to address is to address that balance. We, we, we completely support the efforts to reduce um, and to avoid impact altogether. But, uh, you know, but we still have to address whatever balance we can't reduce. And secondly, you know, as we're on this journey to reduction and to renewable and, and, and all of that, um, it takes time. Um, you know, it's uh, it, it just since uh, just since I started uh, uh, the Rimbaraya Reserve in 2008, the world has lost an area of biodiverse forest the size of Belgium. Mm. What? So while we're talking and debating and hoping um, to pass legislation that might be reinforced uh, or enforced, uh, you know, these impacts go on. And, and the problem with addressing, you know, th these things at their source is that you have tremendous amount of resistance, you have uh, apathy, you have, you know, political debate, um, you know, you, you've got a lot of things to overcome before decades in the future, the, those begin to, to have, you know, to, to take effect and to have a positive impact. And uh, again, if we, you know, can address mitigating the impact uh, through offsets, uh, connecting, you know, the consumption, addressing the problem at the point of consumption, then, then we have a chance to, you know, um, to, to mitigate the ongoing impacts much more immediately than the sort of longer term, you know, uh, efforts to completely change, um, you know, human society. I mean, we, we've had, uh, thousands of years of this extractive economic model, and that was perfectly uh, sustainable until maybe 1950. And in 1950, the world's population, somewhere around mid-century, the, the world's population and, and consumption rates exceed the carrying capacity of this earth or the ability for earth to reproduce the resources that we consume. And we started running an environmental budget deficit. And so, you know, 
thousands of years of, of using essentially the same economic paradigm of extracting value um, uh, versus replacing it, um, that's not, you know, that doesn't change very easily. We don't have time to be faffing about with all of these. We just need to get going on saving these these spaces for sure. Um we got to throw everything that yeah. has even the, the slightest positive impact. We have to throw at the problem. So. Yeah, exactly. We just, I think it feels like to me, everybody needs to stop what they're doing and solve these problems. And it feels like everybody should just be like pins down, solve the problem, and then we can keep going. We've talked a lot about RED. And if I understand correctly, RED is, is more the approach and the mechanism. So lots of projects around the world can use the RED approach in whatever it is that they do to conserve an area or, or, or save carbon from being emitted. Um, so Lyle's going to chat to you about Infinite Earth and, um, and also about Viridium, which are two of those projects, if I understand correctly. Great. Yeah. Well, Infinite Earth is, is a red project. And then Viridium is just a, a uh, f uh, environmental fintech company meant to create, you know, more and more tools uh, to, to be able to, uh, to, to create deeper and broader markets for those, um, for those types of credits. So continuously looking for ways to give a price and put value on, on natural capital. I just wanted to quickly reiterate the point you were making earlier, which is that we have this toolbox and in the toolbox, we have a lot of tools and conservation obviously, and definitely has its place in conserving and protecting our natural assets. But red of course does too. And, and I think, as you said, we need, we need to throw as much stuff at the wall and hopefully as much of that will stick as possible and give us the best ch possible chance of, of saving what little, bit of rainforests and forests in general we have left. Okay, so fo focusing on viridium, I wonder if you could just elicit a little bit more on that, Todd. So we understand it uses blockchain technology to create this new asset class of what you call eco-smart commodities that will revolutionize sustainable supply chain management. And that's a, a mouthful of jargon, and I'm not, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not entirely sure how many of our listeners are across blockchain technology, but could you give a breakdown for us just at a high school level of what, what that all sort of means? Sure. Um, so, uh, yeah, so uh, just, just to backtrack just a little bit, because the, there's a reason we got here. Um, so, you know, conventional not-for-profit conservation clearly has its place, um, but what it doesn't do is address really the, the, the underlying driver um, uh, which is that there, you know, there are economic forces, uh, not the least of which is the fact that natural capital doesn't have a price. And so that really was what Red Plus was supposed to, um, to accomplish. And, you know, it largely has. We sell to uh, over a half a dozen, maybe almost a dozen Fortune 500 companies uh, uh, support um, the Rimbaraya Reserve. Um, through, you know, for, for uh, their corporate responsibility initiatives. And, and but it's still fairly disconnected. Um, so just to, to, to give you an example, you know, we, we, we uh, if you take a company like Unilever that has, you know, a very, you know, a vast, uh, uh, you know, offering of, of thousands of brand products uh, throughout the world, Clearly, they have a very broad environmental footprint as well. 
Um, and so we worked with companies like that and Procter and Gamble and so on for, uh, you know, for several years trying to f- come up with solutions on how to mitigate these incredibly complex uh, I- impacts in these incredibly compact supply chains. And I, I use the example of the candy bar, uh, candy bar fairly often. You know, a company making a candy bar will uh, source its palm oil, you know, from Indonesia through an Indonesian subsidiary. Uh, uh, they'll source maybe the cocoa from Africa from yet another subsidiary. And then let's say the sugar from Brazil. Um, so there's three different corporate sets of books. And all of that, uh, you know, may get shipped back to a factory in New Jersey um, to produce the final product, a candy bar. And so uh, it it becomes quite difficult to be able to match specific environmental mitigation credits to specific environmental impacts of, uh, you know, these distinct commodity units. And, you know, even more difficult to then track and trace and eventually audit those at the end of the supply chain. And, you know, virtually impossible to communicate that uh, to the consumer who can then somehow, um, you know, without going blind, reading the fine print on the back <laughs> of the shampoo bottle, yeah. uh, you know, to verify whether that's true. Yeah. And, and so, you know, while red plus credits have, uh, uh, with projects like, uh, the Rimbaraya biodiversity reserve and, and our friends at wildlife works, uh, their the two projects, uh, in, in Africa and, and, uh, you know, others in, in South America, while, while all that has helped and, you know, there are very, very tangible, places, you know, very large reserves in the world that are being paid for exclusively from the sale of these red credits. So, you know, we can, we can demonstrate that it works. Um, it's still not a very digestible product. And, and again, you know, not very digestible for the corporation and, and even less so for the consumer. And, and so, uh, blockchain Viridium was really, um, Viridium was started because we started to understand or, you know, hear inklings that companies were exploring blockchain technology, uh, which is really so blockchain for the for, for those benefit of those who don't really know blockchain. It's really nothing more than a digital ledger. And it's incredibly transparent and it and it can't be it can't be you know uh, really modified yep. um, uh, very you know very easily sure. so be, be, that ledger so if you just look at that as an accounting ledger it exists on hundreds or or thousands of computers uh, servers throughout the world and so you know in order to hack or or to adulterate that ledger you would have to do so on every single server where it exists. And this is the, the idea behind the blockchain is this, is this notion called consensus. It's like if the vast majority of these computers say that it's X, but you have one that says it's Y, well, Y gets kicked out because it was clearly tampered with. Okay. Um, but so, so it's nothing more than a very transparent, very auditable accounting ledger. And so as companies begin to use, um, and, you know, banks and governments are adopting blockchain uh, or digital accounting ledger technology, um, you know, uh, globally. And so as companies begin to settle 
commodity transactions, for example, over the blockchain, or they begin to integrate uh, their supply chain um, into the, you know, using blockchain accounting technology. Um, then that gave us, we realized that that gave us an opportunity finally to, to, to be able to use blockchain as an emulsifier, if you will, yep. uh, that, that could synthesize, you know, and, and, and literally match very specific, highly auditable uh, environmental impact credits with uh, specific commodities and the underlying impacts uh, that they had. And to follow those through, you know, a, a, an incredibly complex supply chain uh, from buying, you know, tons or shiploads of palm oil and cocoa and sugar down to the individual candy bar on the, on the grocery store shelf. And even the most, probably the most important part to be able to then communicate that with the consumer um, in the form of, you know, loyalty points, uh, reward points, uh, you know, programs, et cetera. So, you know, a company could say, this is a rainforest, you know, friendly candy bar. And yes, it did have impacts, uh, which were offset and you can audit those offsets. You can actually see where the money went and it went over here to orangutan conservation and down here to gorilla conservation and, you know, and so on. And, um, and, and then, you know, then you begin to incorporate the consumer into the solution. The consumer has to be part of the solution, right? I mean, they, they are the problem. We, you know, we, we like to point fingers at big, bad uh, corporations, but in fact, the consumer holds all of the responsibility. Um, and, and, and so, you know, this, this using blockchain, uh, enables everyone to have a transparent conversation and for consumers to even begin to have a voice, you know, you can speak most loudly with your wallet. And so that's, that's the hope of Viridian is to create these, uh, commercial level as well as consumer level blockchain solutions where we, you know, we get further and further, you know, we start creating solutions at the furthest point down the chain, which uh, which is the point of consumption, and therefore we introduce the least complexities and the most transparency. That's really, really interesting. And as you said, consumers drive big business and big business respond to those consumer demands. So essentially the idea is at the point of purchase, we'll be able to pick up that candy bar and see whether or not it's been made in a sustainable fashion, however that is uh, translated to the customer supposedly there will be a carbon charge on that candy bar then you will pay for that additional cost whatever that might be in the knowledge that that candy bar comes from a sustainable source or through a supply chain that is sustainable to a, a greater or lesser extent yeah that's correct so uh, so viridium uh, again we just we uh, through our ev evolution we keep working further and further down the, this this value chain and essentially we realize that you know the problem and therefore the solution lies in the money itself. It, it's a very, you know, impossible undertaking for us to go door to door like some traveling salesman with our little briefcase of solutions and convince, you know, uh, uh, Unilever and Procter and Gamble and Microsoft and Exxon and, you know, and Walmart and, you know, individually to to uh, to adopt whatever solution it is that we are selling. 
And, um, and so we, we realized that uh, if we could create what we are calling a eco-smart currency, where you, the consumer didn't even have to think about it, or even, even the corporation didn't have to think about uh, you know, adopting um, and approving at the board level and, you know, all the things that have to happen uh, for a company to actually uh, make it, you know, a, a, a complex decision like this. Um, if they could just simply transact in a currency that had a, this unique utility that it, it automatically had uh, um, environmental offsets uh, embedded in the currency itself. And, and if you look at that like a battery that's got this carbon charge or even even broader, a, an environmental charge, and each time you transact, it, it discharges a little bit to pay for the underlying impacts of, of whatever you're purchasing. And so that's what we've created in a, this new EcoSmart currency that we call Verde. So essentially, this goes back to that point that a candy bar that you might buy in the store today absolutely does not include what it costs essentially for the environment. And, and that is not built into the product. It has, it's not built into any products that you'd find in a supermarket at the moment. And I just want to make clear, Todd, so, we, so that's at the consumer level. But there's also, as you mentioned, the enterprise level. Does that work in the same way where they would pay a carbon charge on top of whatever that they're doing or taking out of the the earth? Yeah, exactly. So we're working with IBM um, and IBM has uh, been building uh, uh, for the better part of a year or two um, a, a uh, blockchain based oil and gas trading platform. So Again, you know, agricultural commodities, minerals, uh, you know, and, and fossil fuel products, oil and gas products are all beginning to look to blockchain for the efficiency um, that it provides in, 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 you know, international transactions. And so uh, if you take the IBM oil and gas trading platform, uh, American Airlines wants to buy uh, jet fuel from Exxon in U.S. dollars, they they will eventually be, uh, later this year, the platform launches, and they'll be trading that, uh, you know, product over this blockchain platform in U.S. dollars. Um, but if they simply transact in Verde currency instead of U.S. dollars, then that uh, shipment of jet fuel becomes automatically carbon mitigated or carbon neutral. Um, and that is through the protocols that we've developed in, the, in this charge and discharge mechanism of, of the currency. And they don't have to do a thing except price that product and, and transact that product in the Verde currency rather than in U.S. dollars. And presumably, Todd, that means that there is uh, some sort of value attributed to uh, the carbon or so say there is x gallons of oil traded in the verde currency that oil will have a, an equivalent carbon value exactly it's very identifiable and and so that you know the the, the verde the, each verde individually doesn't have a charge so that at any given time all verde are fully charged because it really each verde is is look at it as being like a uh, a node that is connected to this big battery bank and the battery bank is constantly being recharged so um so yeah so just by virtue of transacting in a currency whatever the product that you're transacting is it, it is being 
um, you know, offset by that specific footprint. Now that's fairly easy on an oil and gas trading platform where there's maybe a dozen, you know, uh, product classes and, and, and therefore, you know, each one having a, a specific footprint. Um, and then at, at the consumer level, it's basically a global average. And, and of course, with all averages, the bigger the basket that you use, um, the more accurate that average becomes. And so ours is the entire global basket of products and services. So he, really, it's a, a simple protocol. You just you have a, a global footprint. Uh, and a global GDP or GWP, right? The, and and you you from that you can um, you get what the actual carbon footprint of every dollar spent in the economy um, has. And so you know our uh, the, the the way our protocols work. If you're doing a consumer transaction, it just takes that global average. If you buy um, you know, it doesn't matter if you're buying a Rolex watch for, you know, $10,000 or, or a t-shirt for $10. Um, you know, it's, uh, it, it's, it, it knows that it, that you, you took that $10 times, you know, the footprint per dollar or $10 times the footprint times $10,000. So that there'll be some sort of very clever calculations going on in the background, no doubt, to figure out what that <laughs> yeah, equivalent exactly. is. And that's all, that, that's all uh, again, open source and, you know, has, uh, uh, has been audited um, by a, uh, a big five accounting firm. And then also uh, the blockchain is publicly, you know, viewable and auditable. Um, and so, you know, the, 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 there's a, we have, we've formed a nonprofit foundation, um, and called the Viridian Foundation and the Viridian Foundation is, uh, really responsible. It's sort of the, you know, custodian of all these underlying credits and, and, you know, providing a, a clear and transparent, uh, public accounting, uh, that the footprints, you know, were actually reduced and the credits were retired and replaced, et cetera. So where, where to from here? I, this is in the early stages, I understand. When can we expect that this sort of technology will become mainstream? So um, in general, uh, you know, cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum and, and Lumens uh, from Stellar, um, you know, those, as you've seen in just the, the last year, I mean, probably, uh, you know, a year and a half ago, you may have never heard of Bitcoin or, or a blockchain. And now suddenly it's, you know, it's on everybody at the, you know, the end of everybody's tongue, right? Absolutely. And everybody's yeah. talking about it, uh, right down to, you know, uh, your grandmother. So, <laughs> um, so I think it's, uh, uh, like all new technologies, it's exploding. The rate of acceleration is mind blowing. Um, I would say that in less than five years, uh, cryptocurrencies are going to be widely accepted as a form of payment, um, either online or, or you know, digital wallets uh, being paid uh, at the, you know, at the checkout stand. Um, and and hopefully, you know, Verde will be right there as uh, among them as one of the options, you know, one of the the uh, currencies to uh, to pay in. The technology is there today. It's largely about uh, ad adoption. So, you know, uh, it's taken the industry quite some time just to accept uh, digital payment forms like uh, Google Wallet or or WeChat Pay or Apple Pay, um, uh, you know Samsung Pay, etc. And those are just linked to your bank account. They're just you know basically digital versions of your 
uh, of your credit card or your eight of your debit card. Yep. Um, and, and so, you know, those are, those are, uh, uh, you're being, you're seeing those, you know, in more and more places, uh, throughout the world, uh, being accepted. And, and once that's, ex- you know, once that becomes the norm, uh, then, you know, cryptocurrencies as just a simple, uh, uh, choice of currency. So, you know, I, uh, if, if I am, you know, have a, a, a U.S. credit card and I travel to Hong Kong, obviously my, my, you know, my credit card is charged in Hong Kong dollars and, you know, somehow the banks work it out in between and I get a bill in U.S. dollars when I get home. Yeah. Um, and, and essentially it'll work the same way. You'll just be, choose the currency uh, that you want to pay in, whether, you know, you, your bank account may have U.S. dollars and Verde and, and uh, Lumens and, you know, in there. And you, you may decide, you know, uh, okay, I'm purchasing a tank of gas and that has a pretty significant impact. So I think I'll pay in Verde. That's fascinating. And I must say, from a consumer perspective, given the choice of two candy bars, one in which the cost of the environment is built into the product and another which is not, morally, I would feel absolutely obligated to choose the one with Verde and spend in currency Verde because that really is is a fascinating solution. Todd, I'm just going to hand over to Joy. I see that we're getting over an hour now, so I think yeah, she, sorry she wants about to that, Todd. start wrapping it up. <laughs> But I, I no didn't... apologies necessary. I apologize for droning on. Not at, <laughs> no, all, no. not at all. I know that I'm supposed to be closing now, but I just I noticed on the Viridian website that there was a credit card, potentially a credit card solution for consumers where you could pay in inverters. Am I understanding correctly? A hundred percent. We worked on this ten years ago already, just with our Red Plus credits, and it's a it's a um, it's a very simple model. It's just like your airline. Uh, you know, miles, uh, rewards, points, credit card. Um, it just simply, uh, so, you know, if you have uh, a British Airways card and, a v, you know, Visa card and you buy something, um, the merchant pays three, maybe 3% uh, merchant fee. You know, you buy something for $100, it costs you $100, but the merchant pays $3 to Visa. And out of that $3, uh, you know, 1% of the, of the total transaction or, or $1 goes to British Airways to pay for the miles that they reward you with. Yeah. And so this essentially works exactly the same way. Uh, it's a reward uh, uh, points credit card that, uh, you know, where where Viridium would get the that $1 or that one, you know, $1 per hundred or 1% um, and payment uh, for, you know, uh, uh, for the for the underlying credits that mitigated your purchase. And um, so this was something that was quite advanced, but, um, you know, uh, didn't really work uh, under the Red Plus model. We believe it will with Verde being a, a currency. Um, and so uh, we, we definitely hope to launch that, uh, you know, sometime in the near future. Again, we, we keep coming up with ways to get this further and further into the hands of the consumer. Um, you know, the the the. the Broadly, the global public has said we want solutions. We understand this is a big problem. Um, And at the end of the day, largely nothing happens because not because companies, corporations are resistant to it. Uh, they're happy to actually pass it on, you know, the cost of whatever it is on to you as the consumer. Yeah. But, you know, what companies value is is clear communications. And in the communications, they hear anecdotally that we care. 
And then when we vote with our wallet, we say we don't care. You know, we're more than willing yeah. to continue to. And, and so, it, you know, or they, they realize that you want a rainforest friendly candy bar, but how do we really certify that it is? And how do, you know, it just becomes really complex as you move the burden of, of the solution up the value chain you know, to the corporations. So it's not that we're giving corporations a pass. It's just that it's too complex. And if the consumer can really vote and really communicate to the corporation just by what currency they decide to, to, to spend, um, then that provides a tremendous amount of valuable feedback to corporations who can then adjust behavior accordingly. Oh, absolutely. I, I can totally see the value proposition there. I mean, we try to be conscious consumers and going to the supermarket takes a ridiculous amount of time because you have to sit there and read the back of every single pack and try and figure out to what extent you're destroying the planet by your purchase. So to have a little bit more transparency, but <clears throat> also, you know, very obvious mechanisms like a credit card where you know that it's, it's doing some good would be um, the conscious consumer's dream, I would think. We hope so. We hope so. <laughs> um, Todd, you, I'm going to, I'm going to close up now. But before we do, you are obviously extremely passionate and mission mission driven, and would no doubt be an inspiration to many aspiring change makers out there. Would you have any advice, tips, tricks to share uh, to anybody out there who's wanting to have an impact in their day to day life or indeed their career? I, I, um, I, I just would say. Focus on, uh, <laughs> not to sound like a broken record, but uh, focus on what the under, you know, what's the underlying driver. You can't solve problems if you don't know what's really causing them. So you, you know, it's uh, it, we we all feel great about going out there and you know chaining ourselves to trees or or protesting or what have you. But uh, at the end of the day, there's a reason that's happening, and the deeper understanding that we have. Uh, of, of what is, you know, uh, uh, what is causing that, um, it, I think leads us to much more practical and, and efficient um, and immediate solutions. Yeah, amazing. And Todd, where can people find out more about the work that's been done at Infinite Earth and Rimbarea? There's a website, I understand, infiniteearth.com? Yes, yep, it's uh, in infinite-earth.com. And also at uh, viridium.io. Okay, so that's the website for Viridium. And on the social medias as well? Yes, we, we have Facebook, Twitter, you know, um, all Instagram, all the above. Okay, we'll put links to all of those in our show notes. And we'll also provide a bit of an explanation about Infinite Earth because we ran out of time and didn't talk about that in a lot of detail. But that is a super, super interesting um, organization as well so we'll we'll put a little blurb in and explain what that what that is and the work that's been done there as well as Rimbaraya because it's it's super cool but thank you so much Todd thank you very much for the time we've been we could probably talk to you all day I think there's so many topics we could have delved into with you uh, it's been it's been a super interesting discussion. No, on the contrary, thank you. Uh, I I, uh, I love what you're doing, and again, raising awareness is is really you know probably the most important component. Uh, it it really doesn't help too much if uh, you know nobody knows what we're doing or nobody knows about the issues. So, uh, thanks for doing everything you're doing, and I wish you the best on your amazing journey in the year ahead. Thanks so much, Todd, and to you too. And we really thoroughly look forward to following Viridium Labs and, and I look forward to getting my own Verde card. Yeah, I'm quite excited about that too. <laughs> well, I, hope, I hope we see you in Borneo towards the end of the year. 
Absolutely. We Absolutely. definitely have that on the on the radar. So we, we look forward to, to coming out there and, and, and seeing a little bit more of the work that you guys are doing there. Fantastic. Thanks, you guys, so much. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. Thank you so much, Todd. Take care, Todd. Listeners, we hope you enjoyed that episode. It was definitely one of the more complex interviews we've done. So we've written an article which will hopefully explain things a little further. We'll link to that as well as Todd's various organizations in our show notes, which you can find at sustainablejungle.com forward slash podcast. And we're nine episodes in. Let us know how we're doing. Are these topics interesting? Are there other things you'd like us to cover? Let us know in the comments. Thanks and catch you next time.